Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. A little less than 2,000 years ago, Roman Emperor Domitian ordered vines ripped up throughout the Roman Empire and limited plantings to encourage people to plant more grains so that Rome would increase its food supply. About 200 years later, Emperor Marcus Aurelius Probus retracted that degree and vineyards began creeping over the Alps and into Austria. Around 800 AD, Charlemagne jump-started winemaking he encouraged vineyard expansion and spread healthy winemaking and viticultural practices throughout the region. Around the 11th century, monastic plantings increased and monks helped establish the modern-day Thurman region and terraces in the Wachau. Also during this time period, the royal family moved their base to Vienna and viticulture became popular for the everyday person within the city. By the 1300s, Vienna was a major trade port along the Danube. And in 1359, we see our first wine tax levied on the record books. This was a 10% tax, and importers and exporters also found that they had to pass through tolls to transport wine. For the 50 years before World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was one of the most culturally influential entities in the world. And the contributions of this entity to our modern-day society are far-reaching in ways that are difficult to fathom. During this period, Thousands of kilometers of railway track were lined, which changed European trade forever. Cultures collided along the roads and in major cities throughout the empire, and Vienna was at the hub of it all. Architecture and city planning were recrafted in Vienna. Momentous advancements were made in the arts. Music, painting, poetry, opera, ballet. This was the time and place where romantic composers like Mahler and Strauss walked the Ringstrasse and could have passed their challengers, Webern and Schoenberg, who wrote with the 12-tone scale. This was the time and place when Gustav Klimt painted his unique gold-tiled paintings. We also see changes in fashion aimed at advancing the health and freedom of movement of women. Bustles and corsets, though popular, began to be challenged. Corsetless dresses were worn by some, and ultimately, this fashion movement greatly affected the way women dress today. This was also a time and place of self-questioning and philosophy. Freud penned much on psychoanalysis, and Rudolf Steiner laid the foundations for biodynamics as he attempted to synthesize science and mysticism. This was a fascinating time period as the empire sought to incorporate the best parts of the Industrial Revolution. But it wasn't all perfect. Phylloxera ravaged much of the vineyards, and there was also a darkness in this bustling and culturally rich empire. Many languages were spoken throughout the empire, and there were inevitable clashes in cultures. There was also a palpable tension between public government and a sovereign monarchy, and we see the dangerous ideas that informed both World War I and World War II gaining momentum. But even before the World Wars, some of the conflicts led groups of people to flee elsewhere and take their ideas and winemaking traditions with them. From the Austro-Hungarian Empire, we see many Silesians leave and bring their winemaking traditions with them to Australia, where they founded the Barossa wine region. From Dalmatia, we see many Dalmatians settle in northern New Zealand and establish the beginnings of a winemaking tradition there. 
and from Croatia, we have a lot of rich viticultural heritage in California. But despite the diaspora, the world wars devastated most of Europe, and Austria was no exception. After the wars, Austria was given borders, was occupied by the Allies for about a decade, and then was fully recognized in 1955. And that's really not that long ago. The modern era of Austrian wine is really happening right now in our lifetimes. We could look at the beginning and possibly pinpoint it as 1986 with the establishment of the Austrian Wine Board. Since 2001, a DAC system has been refined and continues to be refined, and several DACs have subcategories of classique and reserve. Though Austria has a couple thousand years of winemaking history under its belt, the disruption of the 20th century, in a way, has given the country a fresh start in terms of the winemaking business. But Austria has so many advantages that brand new wine regions don't have. Austria has centuries of data on viticulture and varieties that do well in the areas, some pre-war vineyards, centuries of data on soil types and what grows best where, and this has led to a swift organization of DACs that will most likely continue to play out into even more specific subregions and classifications. Just in the last decade, we've seen a huge boost in the perception of quality. And today, Grüner is practically a household name. What does the future hold for Austrian wines? We'll just have to keep tasting to find out. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand fred loimer on the show from austria's comptal region hello sir how are you hello i'm fine Nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you too. Let's talk a little bit about the family history. Your dad took over the winery from your grandfather in the early 60s. Yeah, that's right. So it's a very classic story in uh, Austria or Europe. Uh, so my, my dad took it over from his dad and his dad ran not a real winery. He ran the farm with everything, with fruit, with wheat, with animals. And my father, because of the 60s, where it starts to get only two wine in my town, he changed it to an only wine-growing farm. Instead of mixed agricultural endeavors, he decided, we're just going to do wine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was around 14, 15 acres. Oh, okay. When I took it over, he started with eight or nine acres. And it was all in the Comptal. Sure, everything Kamtal. It was not named Kamtal at that time. It was the Kamtal, of course, because of the river. But the region was named Langenlois. That's the name of the town where I come from. And that's something that you really identify with on a number of your labels, the Lois Grüner For example, so the Lois is our basic Grüner and we we thought we should put an, a nickname on it, which is Lois for Langenlois. And it's also a male name in Austria and a female name here in, in the States. You started working with your dad. And what was he like to work with when you were a younger man? So there was a completely different situation as it is to now. I went to school from, so wine school from 79 on to 83. And, um, and that was in Austria. That was in Austria, close to Vienna. And at that time, there were a lot of 
a lot of more wine estates, very small, and most of the wine was sold to to customers in Austria. So there was not so much export. There were a few companies who were exporting. Lenz Moser is maybe the most famous. And then this was a kind of only making very simple wines, so land wines, or nobody's the wrong thing. There were a few estates uh, still doing really good quality wines, but uh, most of that was simple. And this ended in a kind of disaster in, in 85. And from that time on, I came in and also my generation came in and uh, my generation changed then everything. So from these, let's say, simple wines to high quality class wines. How did your generation, do you feel in general, how did they go about doing that? They got, I would say, the chance by time. They were in the right place at the right time. And uh, a lot of people at that time, so for example, my school class ended with uh, 24 people. There were at the end five or six taking over the business from their parents. And all of them moved and changed to high class quality. So Gernot Heinrich, for example, is one of the most famous red wine producers in Austria, went with me to school and, and some others. Today you're 50 years old. I am 50 years old. I turned to 50 in June, yeah. Just to give a perspective of... Yeah, <laughs> that's it. I turned from a young, talented winemaker <laughs> to an old very quick, yeah. You took over in 97 and you made a major seller purchase in 98. That's right, yeah. So I took it over from my parents in 97. Um, so I started with them working. Um, I always worked with them, but I really started with them in um, 88, 89. Then got the chance to take it over, did it. And after a year, got the chance to buy an old cellar in, in Langenlois in my town, which belonged to an castle to a noble family in the 19th century so it's a huge one it's a very nice one it was a far too big step for us at, at that time how but did I, you pull that off i mean what did you do i'm the type of jumping in cold water and uh, look how cold it is afterwards <laughs> so i did it and i had enough luck to make it and you did some architectural structure on top yeah, because there was nothing. There was no structure. So there was only an old cellar underneath in, in the way they built that in the centuries before. Perfect for in climate, uh, not so perfect in hygienic and all these things. And there was absolutely no infrastructure. And so we had to build office, tasting room, heating and whatever. And that was the first step. And we did that with, I would say, high style architecture because we said this old cellar is classic architecture from the 18th century. And we want to keep that tradition and don't want to build something else. We want to build high-class architecture. And we did that in a contemporary way. And in between, you had worked both in the Nahai of Germany and also in California. Yeah. When you set foot into designing your own winery space, because you had to put in new vessels into that vaulted space. Did those experiences affect your outlook and did it affect your ideas for winemaking? Yeah, sure. You know, winemaking means that you get influence day by day. And you get, of course, very strong influence from your school. Afterwards, uh, in practice year, uh, and I was there in Nahe, in Germany, that they did at that time a very strict regime in the cellar. So that was the time uh, for that. I learned that, hygienic in the cellar. I go to California, I work at Schuch. Uh, Shock Winery in Caneros and learned making wine with barrels. And so I came home with all these influences. And then, of course, when you're young, you're still traveling. I'm still traveling now, looking to colleagues, uh, what they are doing. And today it didn't stop. So each day, like the trip now in, in New York, you taste wine, you see restaurants, you talk to people that gives you influence and this influence goes in your daily work and maybe in two, three years, the wines move in an other direction, step by step, very, very slow steps, of course, very, very little steps, but winemaking is always evolution. So it sounds like your dad set the family on the course of doing strictly wine and then you worked with your dad and you made through 
education and through visits to other regions and through an economic situation that wasn't very good for basic level wine. He made a lot of decisions to do it perhaps in a different way, expanded the acreage, bought a new cellar. That sounds like a lot of changes in a fairly short period of time. How did that work with the generations? I mean, what kind of conversations did you end up having with your dad? Yeah, that that's uh, that was a, was a hard time in a way for both my father and me um, because I came in with all the, these ideas at the time where he finished his working life in a way. And, you know, when your son is coming and tell you you did everything wrong, you may be not so happy. So that took years that we both understand each other. And today he's proud of my way. And today I'm proud of what he did in his generation. So your, your father's still alive. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that cellar space. You told me that when you took it over, you wanted to put in wood because stainless wasn't really going to fit. You know, it was, um, when I started, I started with plastic tanks and I started with all the old wooden cask, 50, 60 years last in the cellar. And I want to get rid of, uh, of these materials because they were hard to keep clean and all that. So at that time, which was around 88, 89, 87, we start moving everything to stainless steel. And in 95, I sold the last wooden cask. And I thought barrels at that time, so barriques and stainless steel is everything you need for winemaking. But, you know, when you say like that, you get an influence and then you move to a different direction. And, um, and one of the influences was I started with a Grüner Wettliner, main variety in Austria, making in barrels in uh, 93. And this was a Grüner Wettliner with oak influence and get big ratings. But after a while, I realized that maybe that's not the right way. And so the barrels get bigger and bigger. And in 99, I ended back again by two and a half thousand liter, as it was the tradition always. And from that time on, and also because of this old historical cellar, we are buying each year one, two, three of these big casks because I want to have now as much as wine in these wooden casks. That's our style. And how would you define that style broadly? What does it taste like and how do you get there? Winemaking is also always different things. And first, we, we wanted to make that wine in wooden cask. And then uh, in 2003, we started thinking about different practices in the vineyards. And in 2005, we started changing to biodynamic. And 2006 was our first year in biodynamic. And with that, we moved back to more spontaneous fermentation and with that spontaneous fermentation, we move back to more sediments in the fermentation. So longer lease time. Uh, yeah, and also more sediments before fermentation. So, uh, you know, modern winemaking today is uh, making a juice clean. So it looks filtered in a way with enzymes or whatever. We are not doing that. And then you put yeast in and then you have controlled conditions in a stainless steel tank. And at the end, you have a wine which is clean, of course, is fruit-driven, a lot of primary fruit, which uh, attracts people, of course, when they smell in. And I thought this is not the style I really like, because it's a style for wines which should be drunk young, and I like aged wines. And so with the spontaneous fermentation, you need at least a little bit more surface in your juice, so more sediments. To keep the fermentation going, you need the food for the yeasts. And with the sedimentation, you take out yeast and you take out food. So it's not a good idea when you make spontaneous fermentation. But on the other hand, when you work with a lot of sediments, you get a risk of reduction and you need then oxidation. And that's the reason why we do that now with the wooden cask. Because you need the breathing through the stage. Yeah, we need to then... Our aging in cask is a very important time and that need time because we don't want to put oxygen in. It's a different story, of course. It doesn't work by white so, so easily. And so we, will, we do that with this big cask, 1,000, 2,000 liters, 2,500 liters. 
some in 600 liters, whatever, and some are in stainless steel. And at the end, we do our blendings and try to get a wine which shouldn't show oak or acacia in front, but gives you, of course, an idea, especially when you have that in a line of stainless steel wines, that there is something else. And it is, of course, wood in a way. But uh, these are wines with different structure, with a different complexity, different deepness for me, and the most important, the age. And I like that. So originally, you were putting Grunerveld Liner into new passage wood, but then you went for bigger wood and longer aged wood before you introduced the Gruner into it. I don't think it's longer. So we stay longer as, as in wines, uh, wines in stainless steel. We, we start bottling these wines around 10 months after harvest, so in August, September. Some are bottled after harvest, so even a little longer, but not longer because then you lose too much the style we have today. You know, style is also a question of time. We had periods where the style in my place was completely different, lighter, longer aged, all the wines were drunken, all that. Then we had a time, which is, let's say, the last period, where everyone wants to bottle in December, and the people ask in November for the new vintage. So a month after, after harvest, and everyone wanted to have these only primary fruit wines. A lot of fruit wasn't from the grapes, it was more from, from the yeast. So, you know, all these modern aromas. And now it, it moves back a little bit, I guess, uh, to, let's say, normal. Uh, that should age, uh, should age in, in barrels or stainless steel on the lease, but not too long. Were there reference points for you to what that normal would be? Because it sounds like with a different things being in vogue, a market that wanted younger wines in Austria and a different foundation from your father than the kinds of wines that you're making now, how did you know that's kind of where I want to go? This is the kind of direction I want to know. Were there wines that you'd tried? Uh, you know, that is also influence again from uh, other winemakers, other countries and also other markets because Austria really likes to drink young wine and still is doing that. Maybe not that bad as it was 10 years uh, ago with asking in November for the new vintage, but still doing the last vintage always. So now they start drinking 13 and when the next vintage comes, they start asking for the new and in February again, starting with the new vintage. And in other countries, like here in the States, uh, they don't care so much about the vintages. They, they really care much more about the quality of that particular bottle. And there you can see a lot of different vintages on the wine lists. And that influences you, of course. So that's one of the reasons why I think wine should age a little bit to get ripe. And it's also important for me that the wine fits great to food. So food pairing is very important for me. And young wines can't do that. Maybe, yeah, as aperitif, light dish at the beginning, whatever, but not as a serious wine pairing. And you are also working with Pinot Gris, for which you're fairly well known. How do you handle the Pinot Gris? Sometimes it's blended, sometimes it's not. I planted uh, my Pinot Gris vineyard, which is just one, and this is one hectare, so it's very, very little. I planted that in 1990. And this was an influence from my neighbor, Willy Brundelmeier, in Langenlois. They had a lot of Pinot Gris at that time. And I liked that variety. And to be honest, there was an, a sweet wine. It was a TBA from 67 or something like that from Brundelmeier. Great wine. And I thought, I like sweet wines. And maybe that's a variety where I can do that in many years. I was wrong because the vineyard where I planted that doesn't show botrytis. <laughs> so uh, I always get very clean, very ripe Pinot Gris grapes. We get it much riper as northern Italy where they do the Pinot Grigio as a lighter style of wine. We get really a full-bodied wine. And at the beginning we did that as a single varietal wine out of that vineyard. Made it in the same way as Chardonnay with a little less oak, so we make a combination of stainless steel and barrels. And today we make a blend with Chardonnay out of that, 
It's, it's um, the idea is a little bit the, the very old tradition of, let's say, the field plans, which get popular at that time in Austria. Gemischter Satz, yeah. That, that was the, the very old history of winemaking in Europe. And, and also in Burgundy, the vineyards were not planted with 100% Chardonnay. They are still not planted, so the old ones with 100%. So you find Pinot Blanc, you find Pinot Grillen. And so today we do a blend, a dry wine of these three varieties in that old tradition. And what about Pinot Noir? You've worked with Pinot Noir a bit. The winemakers always say that's the most difficult grape. And for sure it's a very sensitive grape, but uh, what I learned, it's a completely different grape to this, what I'm doing, Riesling and Grüner mainly. And I like to do red wine, and I'm a white wine region. And so I think Pinot Noir fits very well to that because Pinot Noir is, uh, let's say, the white wine under the red wines. Uh, so it has a different structure, not that on, on the tannin side. Uh, it's really more on the fruit side. shows terroir very well. So things what we are working with by the whites. And red wine producing is very different to white wine producing. In the vineyard, you have that color change. Uh, you can see the ripeness, if you like. And then uh, the fermentation process, completely different to white wine. And that's, of course, also interesting for a winemaker to have that. And we planted Pinot Noir before 80, 79 or something like that. was the first Pinot Noir during school, yeah. And in 89, I thought this is... The first good result, then in 99, I thought that the second time, <laughs> now I get a good result. And to be honest, since 2010, we really get good results because we learned something. This is that Pinot Noir need seller. So Pinot Noir need a um, strong seller hand, need uh, the winemaker's uh, hand in the neck of a Pinot Noir. And when we start doing that, we get much better results by Pinot Noir. And at the moment, we are quite happy with what we have in the bottle and in the cellar. What does that mean effectively? What actually happens in the cellar with the Pinot Noir? It's, you know, we, we learned making a Riesling, for example, uh, also Grüner Wettliner, but even more Riesling. And Riesling get all the quality you get in that wine out from the vineyard. That's maybe, that's the reason why we say Riesling shows terroir most. And there's nothing to do in the cellar, more or less. Pinot Noir, I think you need, of course, the quality out of the vineyard, otherwise it wouldn't work. But then you need a strict regime in maceration, how you are using stems or using not stems, using sulfur, using not sulfur, temperatures, uh, start the fermentation, punching down which temperature, which sugar levels, how often a day, and all that. And that's really interesting to see when you follow some rules, you get a different result. And you make two, well, you have a, a concern in the Thermen region, but in terms of the Comptal, you make two labels. There's Fred Leumer and Weingut Leumer. Yeah. And what are the differences between those? Fred Leumer is the négociant. So we have some contracts. So we do around 45 hectares with partners contracted. And half of them are now organic certified or in transition to organic. Some of them also start to biodynamic, but half of that is conventional farming, still conventional farming. And we take all these grapes together and produce our basic line. Under Fred Leumer, with these names you mentioned, Lois for the Grüner Wettliner, Lenz for Riesling, Fred, my name, because there's a red in Fred for the Zweigelt and the Rosé. And then there are the estate wines, and they are on the Loima label. The Lois is quite popular. You sell a lot of it worldwide. Why do you think that is? Why has it been so successful? Maybe two or three reasons. One is easy drinking light wine. So not complicated. You see it on the label. An easy spelling name, pronouncing name, uh, Lois. Everyone can do that. Grunewittlin is much more uh, difficult. And at the very end, of course, pricing. And these three together makes this one more selling as others where you have single vineyard destination on it. You have Kamptal DSE, Kamptal DSE Reserve, 
erste Lage, so a lot of, lot of secrets on the label, which makes it not easy for the consumers, of course, to select. You need really people behind telling you what you get. Lois is simple. You see it, you remember it, and after a while you, you know what you get. And it's also a colorful label. Yeah, so, you know, Grüner Vetlina Grün is green, and we play with that a little bit. Uh, we have green color inside the label, so it's a white bottle, and so the whole bottle is shining greenish. You look to it, and you see that's a fresh wine. But the part that's not green is the trademark, the Fred Loimer trademark. We have an, a kind of family crest, which is an, a little guy, funny-looking a symbol of fertility from Polynesia, and that's between Fred and Leumer. And also on the Leumer label, we play with that. And this comes out in different colors. So it's sort of like a dancing little figurine. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a dancing little guy. Yeah. If I were to understand the differences between the Fred Leumer label and the Weingut Leumer wines, besides the fact that you own the Weingut Leumer wines, are there difference in terms of how... It's farmed or in the production methods? Yeah, there's a big difference. So as I told you, the contracts, half of them are conventional farming. Half of them are organic or transition to organic. Some are playing a little bit with biodynamic. But the estate is certified biodynamic since 2009. So we start changing in of end of 05 after harvest and 06 was our first year. This brings you to a completely different result. So the grapes are... They look different, actually, and of course they taste different. The story in, in the cellar is also different because you don't want to take biodynamic grapes and then start a technique winemaking in the cellar, of course. We follow a little bit the idea of a light wine, a simpler wine, should show fruit, should be clean, easy to understand. So therefore you need a little bit more technology in the cellar. A wine from a biodynamic vineyard, which is maybe a great vineyard with perfect soil, the perfect variety on it, perfect age, where you really get the fruit you like to get year by year. You shouldn't do all these technologies you can do in a cellar because then you take something away. You lose, you lose character. Maybe you make a an, an wine which is, again, easy to drink, but you don't want to have a terroir wine with that only easy to drink. You want to have character, you want to have individuality, you want that the wine tells the story by himself. And so by these wines, we work in the cellar only, let's say, with one helping hand, this is time. So we do all these, I told you, spontaneous wooden cask and let the wine aging and developing by himself. In terms of the biodynamic procedures for the estate wines, you're part of the RESPECT group, RESPECT with a K. And how did that come about that you joined up with that group? I'm actually one of the person who, who started it. This happens because when I, was, when I was thinking about biodynamic, I started searching for a consultant because, you know, biodynamic is not so often taught in schools. So I didn't know anything, only know there is Rudolf Steiner and there are the car horns and there's the moon and that was it. And it's maybe a little bit esoteric and crazy. And so we looked for a consultant and in 05 we found one, his name is Andrew Laurent. He changed, for example, Joseph Phelps in California to biodynamic principles. And he moved at that time in 05 or 04 to Europe, Switzerland, lived in Zurich and worked a year for Bücklin Wolf in Germany. Changed them or helped them to change. And we asked him, a colleague, Peter Malberg, he has a small estate today in Wachau. And, and me, we asked him to come. And uh, he came in during harvest of five. And I was, I was so deeply impressed from him and his ideas that ask colleagues if they also would like to change or maybe get an idea what biodynamic is. And so we created a school, more or less a school, uh, made that a full week, day by day from eight to five, sitting in a, in a room and he teached us in November 2005. And before I handled him to Gernot Heinrich in Gols, 
He is one of the heads of the Panobile group. It's a group of red wine producers, nine estates, and he made the same. And with these two groups, there were then, most of them were changing. And, and with that changing, this was a process of two to three years, where Andrew was with us. And we met each month together, talked, learned something new, looked to the others. And this group then get the wish to certify biodynamic. But we didn't want to do that with Demeter. Would be easier, maybe. But Demeter is certifying, let's say, the, the biodynamic principles in a way. So the biodynamic way uh, for everyone who is farming, who wants to do that. And we said we want to have also the quality certified at the end. And today is, it is like that. Respect is only certifying wineries with, which have a very good quality which are also, let's say, personal, similar thinking, so we understand each other and don't get a um, too diverse group. And how would you sum up that thinking? What is the thinking of the respect group versus the thinking of, say, the Demeter group? No, the, 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 the thinking and the principles in the fields are same. There are not so much differences. The only thing I think, but of course there are always exceptions, is that respect is not that dogmatic. So we, we came from a different direction. So in Demeter, many people came from the anthroposophic scene, and that's very important for them, and that's good. Uh, that's their way of life. But we came from farming. We are farmers, we are practicers, and we only use these ideas from Steiner, the anthroposophic medicine for farming, to make our vineyard work. And that's, I think, a big difference because then you start thinking a little bit more pragmatic. You allow maybe a little bit more ways to get a good fruit at the end. And this is also a reason why we said we want to have our own certification because when we started, we didn't want to have any certification, but we realized very quick, on one hand, it's not allowed, it's not allowed to talk about biodynamic or talk about organic when you are not controlled. And I think that's very important because, of course, it's popular at the moment and it's easy to say I'm working biodynamic. So it's not allowed, so it's necessary to have certification. And biodynamic means a little bit more as organic. So it's a little bit more work at the end. It's We don't have so many possibilities on the fertilizer side or whatever. And, and biodynamic means really a sustainable work. And we want to tell that. And the only way to tell that to the consumers is to put the certification on the label. Because it would be also possible to put only the European Union certification on the label. That's the easiest way. But we wanted to put also a biodynamic certification on it. And so we founded that group in 2007 so we started in 05 founded that group in in seven and it still is the main work certification and learning so we still meet we have in a month from now we have a seminar of two days which we are doing each year and we we also talk a lot together to get problems maybe fixed or movements and ideas and whatever so it's, it's a great group, a great learning group. The vineyards that you own for the Weingut, Loimer Wines, what are some of those different vineyard sites? There are a lot. We only use a few for the labels at the end. There are a lot because the structure in Europe, and especially in Austria, is very small farmers. It's maybe not so small as it was 100 years ago. So just to give you an example, my town has 7,000 people living a hundred years ago, there were 1,000 families living professional from wine. Today, there's only around 100. But the vineyard land increased in that time. So each single family has now more vineyards as they had before. But they don't have them around the winery, surrounded. It's spread all over the, the, the region. So mainly, of course, 
around the village you're living. And so our 65 hectares, what we are doing by ourselves in Langenlois, are spread all over 110 different places or parcels. Some parcels are close together, but there are at least 60, 70 different places, really places. So when I travel to all my vineyards, I need at least a day. And all these places, or a lot of these places, are historical wine-growing regions, vineyards since 500, 600, 700 years. And you find all these, and these vineyards have names, single vineyard names. Today, we call it single vineyard names. In former times, it was just a name, I think, to find your parcel in, in a way and to make the differences between the parcels. And you found these names in harvest books in town uh, from the 15th century. And with that very old knowledge today, we pick out the best parcels and label them. This happens also 100 years ago with especially one or let's say two single vineyards in, in Kamptal. One is Tübing Heiligenstein, maybe the most famous site in Austria. Great site for Riesling. And the other one I found in a list of an tasting, and it was the first wine tasting where they also did analytics on the wines, which was made from Babo. This was the director of the oldest wine school in the world. This is in Klosterneuburg near Vienna, which I also went. And he made an analytic over 400 wines from the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And very interesting to see. But the very interesting thing for me was that was a site which was in that list. This is Langenlois Seeberg, where we still grow Riesling there. You have, as you mentioned, several different vineyard sites, and they encompass different soil types. So there's Los, there's Loam, there's a little bit of granite. What is the difference in those different soil types in terms of how they express themselves in the wines and the grapes you tend to plant on them? Yeah, there are big differences. And, and Kamptal is one of the regions where you have a big diversity in soil types. This is because of our geographic situation. So we are in a crossing of two rivers. One is the Danube, the longest river in Europe. And the other one is Kamp, a very small river coming from that very old rock massif, which is called Waldviertel, a forest district where you find granite and gneiss and a lot of vineyards on the slopes of that. So that's, we call it primary rock, which is gneiss and granite and all different compositions out of that. So Seeberg, for example, is Glimmerschist, great soil for Riesling. Then the, the region was covered by the prehistoric sea, the Tethys, which brought sediments, so clay and sand. The rivers brought gravels, so the clay made loam uh, soil. And then we have also influence from the Ice Age. So at the Ice Age, and in dry periods and in warmer periods of the Ice Age, the sand, which was shaped from the glasses coming from the Alps, was wind freighted to our region, blown to us, and covered the whole region. So all soils were more or less covered by less soil, and sometimes over 100 meters. And today we have around 40% of this soil. The rest is gone because of erosion. And this soil is completely different to the rock soils. Loess is very fertile, has a lot of limestone in, and carries a good humus content. It's very easy for the roots to go very deep. You can find the roots from the wines in 17 meters uh, deepness. And that's very important for Grunewittlina. So that's the main soil for Grunewittlina because Grunewittlina need water. So we saw our two main varieties, Riesling and Grunewittlina, in that are very different. So Riesling need crystalline rock soil well-drained to get not botrytis at the end, but need water to see, so rivers, to get the light to ripen. And Grunewittlina need water out from the soil because when it gets drought, it doesn't get results. You have no sugar, you have no acid, and you have unripe phenols, and that, of course, doesn't give a good wine. You mentioned not being able to get 
botrytis with the Pinot Gris that you had thought about for a sweet wine, but it also seems like you've avoided botrytis for the dry white wines. Is that true? Yeah, we, we try to. And we saw that biodynamic farming is the best way to avoid botrytis because the, the trick on biodynamic is you need a balanced growth because only a balanced growth is a healthy growth. And we see that we have less botrytis problems since we are doing that. But of course, one thing because of climate warming and the other thing of because of sometimes different conditions in autumn, in September, ripeness is a little bit earlier as it was 50 years ago. So we are we having now the ripeness in a warmer period of the year. And when you get rain at that time, there is a danger of botrytis. And of course, we also get it. But what we are doing then is we select it out. So if the botrytis is not fine, we go through and goes on the soil and we take only the clean fruit for the first selection, for example. And when a second botrytis is coming, it's normally a great one. Depends, of course, on weather. But when it's not only wet, when it's also windy and some dry days, then you can get botrytis up to looking like raisins at the end. And these are, of course, great berries for botrytis wines, so sweet wines. And in this year, we select these out, make sweet wines. But the main goal is that for the dry wines, we don't like to use botrytis or so much botrytis. So a little bit, let's say 5%, when it's perfect, doesn't affect the style of our wines too much and can give an extra. So a little bit more complexity. But when it gets too much, it overpowers the terroir. And I don't like that. So you've been working at the family winery since the 80s. What's been your perspective on climate change in the region of the Comptal? So when I, as a kid, helped uh, during harvest, which I really enjoyed to do, I never walked to school at that time. Um, You would uh, skip school to help with harvest. I skipped school, yeah. It was always... Let's say two, three. It was all very short. It was a different time. So we just had seven hectares. And during harvest, there were a lot of helping hands. And especially my mother liked it to have it short because she had to cook for a lot of people. And and so it was a shorter time. And in that time, I never I never met exams in that time or didn't make exams with a good note at the end. So I liked that work very much. And the big difference really today is at that time, harvest was a thing of cold temperatures. So you walked out, it was really freezing cold. You have to put the eyes up from the, the windows of, from the tractor or all the cars. When you came home at evening after a whole day in the vineyards, there was, the room was heated. It was a warm a dinner on the table and everyone was happy to sit inside. And today we have a lot of harvest days in shorts, warm temperatures. We need cooling machines today to get the juice cold. So really completely different. And that's, it's very easy to see climate warming. So when I walk to school, I always wanted to prepare the press for harvest end of August. And nobody thought about doing that end of August because harvest was mid of October. But I had time because I went, didn't went to school. Today, we have to be prepared in the last week of August. But it happens because it happens that we have to start with Pinot Noir, for example, beginning of September. In some years, we also start with a sparkling now to get grapes with not too much sugar. In some years, we have to start end of August. And yeah, that's at least four weeks earlier. And in average, it's today two to three weeks earlier as it was 30, 40 years ago. Once the wine is produced, what do you see as the challenges for Austrian wine in the global market? The challenge is the small structure. When you look to Austria, the biggest wine company in Austria is still Lenz Moser, and they are doing 18 million bottles. And when you look to California or Australia or New Zealand, you will see this is nothing. There are companies producing 100 million bottles. Gallo, for example, is much bigger as Austria in total. 
And that means we have a lot of players. And of course, all of them have different ideas. And to get that to an Austrian philosophy, which you can sell at the end, is of course not that easy because everyone sees his chance in the market. And, and this is not always that what I would like to see. So that's not easy for the consumers to understand maybe at the end. And the most important thing is, of course, nobody in Austria has the power to put a trademark on the map. It's, it's impossible. So in Austria, they always say Lois is so selling well in, in the States, but we, at the best time we sold in for Lois, 10,000 cases in the States. This is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. But we can't produce more. This is one thing. I don't get the grapes. I don't get the grapes in the right quality. And on the other hand, I am much too small and also my colleagues are much too small to make power on the market. So we, um, it's very important for us to have people who are passionate in our wines. And Austria is for sure, also in the future, a hand-selling product for people who are really passionate in wine. This might be not great for making a trademark, and it's not, maybe not possible to make that. But on the other hand, it's great because you are in a niche with people who really love wine, and that makes the work much easier. Fred Leumer of Weingut Leumer and Fred Leumer in the Comptal. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levi. Thanks. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Travis Morningstar helped with the editing of this episode, and in my opinion, he did a pretty good job.